0: Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God, our Father, and our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The worship folder says that the title for today's sermon should be The Inescapable Jesus. You can see on the screen that I've changed the title. The reason being, I guess I'm kind of giving a shout-out, uh, while we're not directly related to these people... Uh, Nancy and I are kind of like pseudo grandparents uh, to uh, our daughter-in-law's nieces and nephews, five of which comprise the, or four of which comprise the Meyer Band, a bluegrass band. And as I was working on the sermon the other day, I was listening to a song that they were singing that was called John Saw. And it's all about what John saw, and it's really kind of a a hope that we would actually see what John saw which was Jesus, and I thought, maybe I should call the sermon, Seeing What Simeon Saw, and so that's why it changed. And we're going to get to Simeon in a moment, but first I'm going to tell you a little story about a Sunday school teacher. Uh, she asked her class to read Isaiah chapter 9, and the following Sunday, she asked how many of the kids had remembered to read that chapter, and every hand went up. Wonderful, she said. I've got a piece of candy now for everyone that completes the second half of this verse. The verse starts this way. The people who walked in darkness. Instantly, she got answers. The first one was, they use less electricity. (laughs) The second answer was, they stub their toes a lot. Then came, spend most of their time sleeping. I like this one. Though people who walked in darkness are usually burglars and finally could really use a flashlight. Now, obviously, those answers were not right. But does anyone here know what Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 actually says? Well, this is it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. There was a day when the light dawned for Simeon. And Simeon saw something, and we want to see what Simeon saw. Now, I read you the story before, and I think most of us, even our worship holder today, pictures him on the front as being a rather old man. No one really knows how old Simeon was when he met Joseph and Mary in the temple court. The Bible simply says It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And when Simeon saw Jesus, he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. Now, there's something about how this was said. That has always led me to believe, and I suppose most other people, that Simeon was a rather old man when this happened. But the fact is that God had made this man a promise, and the promise was that he was not going to die until he had actually seen the Messiah. God promised. So he actively looked. For the Messiah. And you can almost see Simeon going to the temple every day, kind of prowling around the temple, searching in the faces of every last person who came through the gates. He knew that sooner or later he was going to run into the Messiah right there in the temple. And much to his surprise, one day he sees an eight day old baby boy by the name of Jesus being carried by Mary, and suddenly he knows. Simeon sees. The Spirit of God tells him, this child is born to be a king. And led by that same Holy Spirit, Simeon tells the boy's parents what this boy is going to do, and he prophesies about what this Messiah was to accomplish. Now this Sunday, we're going to focus on just one small little phrase in this prophecy. Simeon said this Messiah would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now, what does that mean? And why would Simeon say this, and why should we even care? Well, I'm going to, first of all, tell you why we should all care. is because we, too, are Gentiles. Now, Simeon said this, though, because that was what God had said about the Messiah back in Isaiah chapter 42. God promised the Messiah, and he said, I will keep you, and you will make make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. And then you can see a little while later in Isaiah chapter 49, God says it again. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, if we move forward into the New Testament in the book of Acts, we read about a time when Paul was preaching to a group of Jews about Jesus, and they actually rejected the message about Jesus. They didn't want to hear about Jesus. They didn't want to hear about the Messiah. And Paul actually goes back and quotes to them that verse from Isaiah 49 that says, Since you have rejected Christ, he was now going to turn his message to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, he said, Now, We turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now what happened was, a simple little sermon like that, and these Gentiles became Christians. Why? Because they realized... That Jesus, the Messiah, had come, not just for the Jews, but had come for them as well. Now, before we go any further, we should answer a couple of questions. And the first question would be this. What is a Gentile? Well, very simply, a Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. So how many Gentiles do we have here this morning? Okay, we have no Jews with us today, okay? Now, what's a Jew? Well, a Jew was someone who was born from the tribe of Judah. Actually, that's where you kind of get jews Judah. Anybody here born of the tribe of Judah? Didn't think so. If you weren't born of that tribe, if you weren't born of the tribe of Judah, you were not a Jew, therefore, that made you what? A Gentile. Now, in the days of Jesus, the Gentiles were hated by the Jews. They'd have nothing to do with them. They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't talk with them. They wouldn't pass the time of day with them. In fact, if a Jew ever bought something from a Gentile merchant, he'd take it home and wash it completely before he'd ever use it. If he bought a table or a chair, he would, they would actually take that chair and table and dip it into a pool. They were washing away the filth, Of the Gentiles from their new possession. Now imagine if you had to do that at Christmas time. Go home and wash everything you bought from a Gentile. You'd be scrubbing for days, some of you. You know, they even had a name for Gentiles. They called them dogs. Dogs. The Jews considered Gentiles losers and outsiders and worthless. And there was a reason why they did that. It was because the Gentiles were not part... Of the family of God. At least that's what they thought. See, only the Jews, they said, had a special covenant with God. Only the Jews had a unique relationship. The Gentiles didn't have it. They did not have the covenant. They didn't have a special relationship. They were on the outside, if you will, looking in. They didn't have a real God in their lives. And therefore, they had no hope whatsoever of salvation. But what God was telling Isaiah was this. When the Messiah came, that was all about to change. And this is part of what Simeon saw. When Simeon told Joseph and Mary Jesus was going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles, what he was telling them was that Jesus came to die for who? For both the Jew and the Gentiles. The Gentiles were part of God's plan. Now, we know about three years after the uh church began in the book of Acts. Peter preached to a Roman centurion in his household. And not only did him and his entire household become Christians, that little act kind of broke open the floodgates for Gentiles. They came in in a rush, and Gentile churches began popping up all over the places, like in Philippi, in Ephesus, and Corinth. And this was all fulfillment of the prophecy That said Jesus had come to be a light for the Gentiles. That Jesus came to die for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. Because that's how God planned it. I'm going to tell you something. To this very day, December the 28th, 2014, there are still some people who don't believe that Jesus came to die for Gentiles. They don't believe that God's main plan was to come for Jew and Gentile. Instead, they believe that the Gentiles were merely an afterthought of God. Now, I don't want to get into a big doctrinal discussion this morning, but that's part of what's called the doctrine of premillennialism. Some people teach that God's main plan was to save the Jews. But when the Jews rejected Jesus, God decided What the heck? I'll take the Gentiles. He kind of took them as part of what you might call plan B. Now, there's a guy that some of you may have heard of. He's a theologian. His last name is Schofield. Um, He is the author of the Schofield Study Bible, which you can buy in most Christian bookstores. And he is considered to be one of the godfathers of present-day premillennialism. And he says that the Gentiles were the great parenthesis. In God's master plan. He said the Gentiles were never part of God's main focus. But after the Jews turned to get from Christ, God decided, okay, I'll add them in. Like some sort of a great parenthesis in his plan. It teaches that Jews are the main focus. But since they rejected it, God had no choice but to turn to these Gentiles. Ultimately, however... These people also teach that God's going to take the Jews in as well, even though they rejected it. Now, there is a Greek word for that. It's called bogus, or if you prefer another word, baloney. I say that because God declared in Isaiah that Gentiles were part of God's original plan. In fact, when we think about this in Isaiah 49, God said, is it too small a thing... For you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept, I will what? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, what that passage is saying, friends, is this if God's plan had been simply to save the Jews, that would have been too small of a plan for God. I mean, Jesus wasn't going to come just for a few, He was coming for what? The whole world. In fact, a Bible passage I'm sure that all of you here know from memory is John 3.16. For God so loved what? The world. Jesus died for the whole shooting match. So premillennials, sorry, are wrong. Gentiles were part of God's main plan. They were meant to be saved alongside the Jews. In fact, the New Testament even calls this a mystery. That God should choose to save Gentiles as well as Jews. But mystery or not, That was part of God's eternal plan. Now, those of you that were in Bible class this morning heard me say that sometimes if you don't really understand the Old Testament, you're not really going to understand the New Testament. And that's why you need to understand and read passages like Isaiah 49 and connect them then with John 3.16. But again, what difference does all of this make? Well, I'll be quite honest with you, it makes all the difference in the world, particularly to those of you who are Gentiles. You know, why should you care about who's a Jew or Gentile? Why should we worry about whether this group or that group was part of God's plan? Well, I'm going to tell you, it makes sense for at least three reasons. The first reason is, if you don't understand what good doctrine is, you're going to become easy prey for bad doctrine. You see, bad teachers take Bible statements out of context. They warp them or twist them in ways that were never meant to be used that way. They change the focus and add to God's message. If you don't know what they've changed, they'll suck you in and draw you away eventually from what God actually teaches in his clear word. Let me give you an illustration. How many of you have ever gone to a doctor and got a prescription? A few of you, okay. You take that prescription and then what? You go to the pharmacy and they sell you the medicine unless you're on Medicare. Maybe some of that pays for it. But have you ever heard of a druggist getting the prescription wrong? Yeah, well, I think most of us know it, it, it happens. Now, why would a pharmacist get the prescription wrong? I would suggest to you it's not because they intentionally intend to do. But uh, I don't want to mean a slight on doctors, but uh, sometimes doctors are notorious for having bad handwriting. Uh, they're so hard to read sometimes. Uh, that I think it might be hard for a pharmacist to read it correctly. Now, other times I think a druggist could probably make a mistake because there are so many medicines that have similar kinds of names. Now, could taking the, the wrong medicine be bad for you? Well, sure. Now, it might not kill you. It might not hurt you very bad, but it certainly won't heal you. Why? Because it's the wrong medicine. Now, I'd ask you, why would you want to take the bad stuff when you could take the good stuff? Now, that's why I'm saying that getting bad doctrine or bad teaching is like that. It might not rob you of your salvation. It might not hurt your relationship with God, but it's not going to do you any good at all. I mean, why would you want to mess around with the bad stuff when you could have the good stuff? I have all kinds of people ask me whether I've read this book or that book or whatever by this guy. And sometimes I just say, I just, in fact, a number of years ago, I stopped reading books by Christian authors. I did that for a while because they all seemed the same to me and I decided the best thing for me to do would be back and get and just read this book. And, and so every year I try to read through it. Right now I'm on a course where I'm going to be starting again when I finish in a couple of days. I'm going to be, fin- I'll finish having read through the Bible. In the last two years, and this next year, starting January 1, I'm going to read through it all in one year. This is probably the most beneficial book, I should say probably, it is the most beneficial book you could read. It's what's going to keep you healthy and whole. Now, all I'm saying is if you don't understand good doctrine, you're probably going to be easy pickings for bad doctrine. And I don't think you want that. Here's the second reason. The key of the gospel message is that neither the Jews, who were the chosen people, or the Gentiles, the outsiders, deserve to be saved. You get that? I mean, the Jews and the Gentiles, neither one of them deserve to be saved. I mean, is there anybody here who deserved to be saved? I don't think so. I mean, the book of Ephesians was addressed to a Gentile church in a Gentile country, and Paul spends a great deal of time teaching the Gentile Christians that they were indeed part of God's plan. In fact, in Ephesians 3 he said, it's a mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. But a chapter before that, Paul had already pointed out that it was a mystery that anybody would be saved. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. In other words, Jew and Gentile alike, we were all in the same sin boat. I can remember in the seminary at Concordia, Fort Wayne, uh, one of my professors, I believe it was Professor Scare, was teaching on this, this subject and uh, the mystery that God would actually save the Gentiles. And there was a lot of discussion in class, uh, but when it was all over, Uh, Dr. Scare said, you know, I'm not really amazed that God planned to save the Gentiles. What puzzles me is why he'd actually choose to save me. Now, we could probably say that about all of mean, It's not so much that God saved the Gentiles, but man, this thing, he saved me. Now, the third thing is, if you don't understand that Jesus came to die for all people, not just the Jews you'd probably be more inclined to reject all kinds of people who just aren't like you. I heard about a church not long ago where a new family visited. And uh, the young son, 14 or 15 years old, sported a multicolored mohawk haircut. You know what I'm talking about. One of the older members caught him in the hallway and made fun of him. She waved her finger in his face and said that he was being disrespectful for wearing his hair this way and for coming to church looking like that. Needless to say, that family never came back. Now, uh, do I believe a mohawk haircut is a good idea? Irrelevant. Not really, uh, but if anybody, male or female, comes to the church with a weird haircut, I just need to remember that Jesus died for that person too, and Jesus is far more concerned with that person's soul than he is with their hair, or lack thereof. You'd want to get that person into Jesus so Jesus could change them from the inside, and guess what, when you're changed on the inside, you might just change On the outside as well. But see, if I am convinced that only certain kinds of people are acceptable to God, or if I believe that only certain kinds of people should be allowed to join my church, then I'm going to reject them because they just don't fit in the mold for me. I mean, they don't look like me. They don't talk like me. They don't dress like me. So, therefore, I'm not going to talk to these people about Jesus, and I'm not going to want them in my church building. A lot of churches find some interesting ways to keep people out of their churches. Back in the 1800s, believe it or not, churches had the custom of voting on who could actually become members in their church. This dates back even in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. They would vote on whether they would accept you. If they didn't want you, guess what? You didn't get in Now, during one particular evangelistic service in that day, an invitation was given at the end of a sermon for all those who wished to turn their lives over to Jesus and be forgiven. And one of the very first people to walk the aisle that Sunday and give her life to Christ was a well-known prostitute in that town. There was dead silence in that church. But in the silence that followed, it was obvious that the congregation was not open devoting her into membership but finally a leading member of the congregation got up and said quote i guess we blundered when we prayed that the lord would save sinners we forgot to specify what kind of sinners we'd better ask him to forgive us for this oversight the holy spirit has touched this woman and made her truly repentant but the lord apparently does not understand that she's not the type we want him to rescue We'd better spell it out for him, just which sinners we had in mind. End of quote. Wow. See, that's what can happen if we forget that Jesus came to save all people. Not just the ones you feel comfortable with. See, the man and woman of God who really understands what Jesus came to do we will realize that Jesus came as a light for the Gentiles. Jesus came for the losers in his day. He came for the outcasts. He came for those people who are regarded as worthless and without hope. And he started with who? The shepherds. See, that's what Simeon saw. Now, why did Simeon see what Simeon saw? I'll try saying that a lot. The reason he was able to see what he saw... Was because he was looking. He was looking for the Messiah. He was searching the faces of every person who came in the door for Jesus. But the Messiah he was looking for wasn't like the Messiah the rest of the Jews were looking for. Now there are some people who think that Simeon was the son of the famous Rabbi Hillel. Uh, Hillel had established a college for rabbis. And his son followed in his father's footsteps and eventually was chosen to lead that college. They also believe that Simeon lost that position of leadership because the Jews of his day believed that the Messiah would establish an earthly kingdom that would throw off the shackles of the Roman Empire and establish Israel as some big, great, powerful nation. The story at least says that Simeon didn't buy into that. He believed the Messiah's kingdom would be a spiritual kingdom that would be greater than any other earthly kingdom could ever be. Now, whether that Simeon is the same one, the Bible doesn't say. But this Simeon prophesied about a Messiah who would do more than change the lives of his own people. This Messiah would change the lives of people who weren't like him. This is the Messiah who would give light to the Gentiles and he would change their lives as well. Now I gotta I'm gonna speak for all of you. this is one happy Gentile up here that Jesus came into this world and changed my life. See, something clicked between Jesus and Simeon. And Simeon suddenly saw what God wanted him to see. Years ago there was a Pastor out in California. Uh, his name was Charles Smith, Chuck Smith. Uh, he was disturbed by the uh, tremendous number of hippies and degenerates that he saw on the streets of San Francisco. And he prayed about it, and God told him, Go out and share Jesus with them. And suddenly something clicked between him and this group of lost souls. And they actually began coming to church. And as the church began to suddenly grow and mushroom, the existing people in the congregation were not very happy at all. They were uncomfortable with these dirty, unkempt, smelly people. I mean, they smelled bad. They they dressed weird. And worst of all, they said their dirty feet were soiling the carpet in the church. Chuck Smith heard all of these complaints, especially the one about the carpet. And he said, okay... Then let's tear up the carpet. And eventually they actually did. They tore all the carpet out of the church. And this church grew so dramatically that today it's actually a fairly large denomination. It's called Calvary Chapel. They're scattered all over the United States today. Now, friends, what I'm saying is as we continue to live here in the Christmas season, we need to remember why Jesus came. Now, he didn't just come to be a cute little baby laying in a little manger of straw. We need to remember that this was God in human form who became fragile and vulnerable and accessible to shepherds as well as to wise men. But the real reason he came to grow was to grow into into a man who had welcomed the outcast and the lost and the rejected of this world, and ultimately he came to die so that their lives would be changed. The question is, is that who you are? Are you one of the lost and struggling? Have you messed up your life so badly that you don't think anyone could possibly love you? Do you think of yourself as someone who's always been kind of on the outside looking in? Are you a Gentile? If so, then Jesus came to this world And died for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of Jesus. We thank you that he included all people when he talked about coming into this world to save the world. Both Jew and Gentile. We thank you for the gift of Jesus in our life. That enables, he enables us to bridge that great divide between us and his father. We thank you for this precious gift, and may we remember it each and every day, not just at Christmas, but all through the year. In Jesus' name, amen.